We're going to be looking at the last half of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 this morning, and hopefully you've had a chance to maybe prep for this by reading uh, this week, but I do want to start by just reading together this scripture. So Esther chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 9, and we're going to read all the way through chapter 6. Esther 5, 9. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, fifty cubits high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Well, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, oh, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. 
Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Well, interesting. Very interesting. This is a... This is where you're tempted to gloat or start to gloat over this guy, Haman, because we see in this passage here how how God starts to work and how the evil that Haman had planned begins to be frustrated. I titled this, this sermon, Frustration, and if you uh, go to a dictionary and look up the word frustrate, uh, one of the um, definitions of that word is to prevent a plan or attempted action from progressing, succeeding, or being fulfilled. So to frustrate something means to prevent it from happening. And this is what we see here. Haman has plans, but they are being frustrated. Now, ultimately, we don't see anything here about the, the big plan to eradicate the Jews, but we see in a small way God beginning to frustrate Haman's plans. And that's really the key thing, is that God is starting to work. Up until this point, we, we've, we've seen that God is there. We've seen that God is, is in this story and in this book, but in this chapter, we see that, that he really starts to do things. And it's interesting that in this scripture here, um, Mordecai and Esther really uh, don't play an active role at all. They're mentioned, but the things that happen, happen without them. They just happen, quote unquote. <laughs> And Haman gets to feel frustration in many different ways. And in the next couple chapters, we'll see it just compounding, this frustration. He has plans, he has desires, and they're being stopped. They're being thwarted. They're not being allowed to move forward. They're being frustrated. And the emotional reaction that we have to being frustrated or having something stopped is what we call frustration. Have you ever had plans and they get stopped and you've reacted emotionally to that? That's frustration. And we see that in Haman in uh, these, these verses here and continuing on in the book of Esther. And Frustration you might see as a negative thing, but really, in this case, frustration is a positive thing because it's brought about by God beginning to work in this story, beginning to really do things, take action. The, uh, the main point that I have for uh, this, this sermon here is that God is there in the midst of our trouble. I'm kind of keeping that theme 
going. God is there in the midst of our trouble. I think it fits with this idea of veiled sovereignty. He's there. He's in control. So the main point, God is there in the midst of trouble. He's doing things that we don't even see. So main point, God is there in the midst of trouble. He's doing things we don't even see. And the outline for the sermon is, is fairly simple. There's three points. And chapter 5, verse 9 through 14, I've titled Secret Wrath. So that's 5 through 19, Secret Wrath. And then verses six, uh, or chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, I titled Insomnia and Assumptions. Insomnia and Assumptions. And then... Chapter 6, verse 11 through 14, simply, God acts. God acts. Have you ever had a circumstance where you have found out later that God was, was working, God was moving, and you were just clueless to it? Anyone? <laughs> Good. Um, I was thinking about this. And one thing that kind of came to my mind, um, my wife's not here, so I can share personal stories. Um, she's listening online. Oh, well, I'll hear about it later. When we uh, first started our relationship together, uh, it was kind of an interesting situation. And I don't know if you know our story or not, but I was a youth leader, and she was in youth group. Now. That should be like red flags. Like, that's no good for a youth leader to have a relationship with someone who's in the youth group. And me, as a youth leader, I wasn't the smartest guy in the world, but I realized that that was probably not a good situation. But Carly caught my eye. I, I liked her. I was like, uh, so what do I do? And, you know, like I said, I'm not a smart man, but I had some sense in me. And so I, I went to our youth pastor at the time, and his name was Jim, and I, I remember that day pretty vividly, because I was pretty nervous. Like, I, I didn't know exactly what I was going to say to him, I didn't know exactly how he was going to react, but I went there knowing, like, I got to say something, like, I can't just, I don't know, I can't ignore this, and I can't do something you know, try and be sly or anything. I just can't do that. So I go to our youth pastor, and we kind of talk about some little things, and then he's like, so why are you here? You know, what's the deal? And after a while, I, I managed to get up the gumption to say, well, I felt like I needed to talk to you because I kind of, I think I like one of the, one of the youth kids. And I said that, and then I kind of like braced for impact, like, oh man, here it comes, you know, I'm out of here, I'm kicked out of the church. And what happened was not at all what I expected. He goes, oh, really? And I said, yeah. And he, and he goes, is it Carly? <laughs> And I said, well, yeah. And I'll never forget this. He looked at me and he goes, you know, Tina and I have been praying for you too. 
And I was like, okay, this is not going how I expected this at all. And little did I know that, you know, it was probably obvious that we liked each other. You know, I think I was being pretty stealthy, but if you've ever seen teenagers who like each other, you know that they, they're not as stealthy as they think they are. Um, but anyways, he and his wife had been praying. They, they had recognized, hey, they, oh, we think there's something here, and they thought it was a good thing. They were praying for us. And come to find out that they weren't the only ones. Like, the, the more that we talk to people, like we found out, oh yeah, we've been praying for you two for a long time. We've been hoping it would work out. And we're just like, this is strange. This is not what I expected at all. And I say that just to, you know, recounting that personal experience, because as I look back, I see that like God was working in that experience, in that situation, through the prayers of other people, uh, through a lot of different things, but he was doing that all like unbeknownst to me. I was clueless in the situation. But it was cool to see that he was at work. And I think we have kind of a, a situation like that here um, in, these, in this passage because Mordecai is kind of clueless. If you look at this passage from Mordecai's perspective, he wakes up one morning, and here comes Haman, the guy who has just uh, been instrumental in making sure that the, the decree to kill all the Jews, annihilate them, destroy them, he was the guy that did that. And here he comes walking up to Mordecai, and he's got a horse, and he's got some clothes. Hmm, what's going on here? And then he clothes Mordecai, in the king's garments, and he sets him up on the horse, and they go parading through the city, and he's declaring, this is what happens to anyone who pleases the king. And Mordecai had nothing to do with this. God had been working in the background in this situation, and according to, you know, from Mordecai's perspective, this is coming out of nowhere. But God is starting to do what the people we're asking for. Remember in the last week, we talked about how they prayed and fasted for three days. They were seeking deliverance, and now God is starting to work. So if we uh, pick things up here in chapter 5, verse 9, if you remember last week, uh, Esther got up the nerve to, to go to the king and she asked if, if he and Haman would come to a banquet, and they did, and it was nice, and the king said, hey, Esther, what do you want? I'll give you anything, up to half my kingdom. And Esther said, well, tell you what, why don't you come back tomorrow, we'll do another dinner, and I'll let you know then. So Haman is coming back from that first dinner, and he's been invited to the second dinner, and according to verse 9, he's on cloud 9. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. So he leaves that first uh, dinner, and he's, he's happy. You know, things are going his way. He's getting rid of the Jews. He's just been invited by the queen to this uh, dinner party. He's going to another dinner party with the queen and the king tomorrow night. Like, could things get any better? Things are going great. 
And then he sees something. Second half of verse 9. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. And here we see the capriciousness of Haman. He's up cloud nine one second, and then boom, something happens, and he is down in the dumps. He goes from high to low just like that. And one of the things that I I think we can see in this and learn from this is just that the, the pleasures of this world, how fleeting are they? I mean, he has, he has prestige. He's just been with the king and the queen. They've just had food, good food. You know, he's looking forward to that again. He has, he has it all according to the world, and he's happy, and then just like that, it's gone. And that's the lie that this world tells us. The world tells us, hey, you can find meaning. You can find fulfillment in money, in riches, in food, in power, and all of this, and it just isn't true. It doesn't last. One second it's here, something happens, and it's gone. And that's something that, that we all need to take to heart, and I think we see it clearly here that Uh, For those whose hope is not in the Lord, their joy and their happiness can be gone in an instant. And especially, we see that uh, Haman's real joy is his self, himself. He is proud beyond belief. And when he is not recognized according to how he thinks he should be recognized, the world stops. And he hates whoever is opposing him at that moment. Because in his eyes, he is God. Well, Mordecai, this isn't necessarily out of character for Mordecai. Remember, this is what he's been doing all along. He's just been sitting there in the gate, and when Haman comes by, he doesn't He doesn't show honor. This isn't a change necessarily in Mordecai's behavior. It's just, it's what it always has been. And we see again, just that that Haman can't handle it. He goes home and he gets all of his friends together and he gets his wife together and throws a major pity party. He gets them all together and I'm sure if you were there with them, you could tell, like, oh, no, Haman's agitated. What's, you know, what's going on? And what does he do? He, he starts to regale them about how great he is, how many sons he has, how many honors he has got from the king. He's just doing anything and everything that he can to, to build himself up because that one act of dishonor from Mordecai has torn his whole world down. And so now he's trying to build himself back up. And he's looking for help in his friends and looking for help in his wife. And I love how he says in verse 12, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. He's thinking it's a good thing that he's there with the king. We'll find out later. It's not. But he is so proud and so arrogant that he can see 
no wrong in himself, and he can only see how other people either honor him or dishonor him. So he throws us this major pity party here. Verse 14, Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So, lovely wife that she is, Zeresh has a great idea. You know, you can just picture her going, oh, Haman, you are, you are so great, and you are so good, and yes, you've been blessed with so many sons, and wow, it's amazing that Esther has invited you. Hey, I know, why don't you just go murder Mordecai? Like, <laughs> I'm glad my wife doesn't give me advice like that. That's... Uh, for those of you looking for a wife, look for a woman who doesn't advise you to murder people. That's probably a good thing. But this, this pleases Haman. And in this, we really see the, uh, the depths of the evil that is in Haman and his friends. We see the, the total antithesis of Philippians 2.3 that says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Instead of putting others' needs ahead of his own, he's putting his needs and his desires so much ahead of other people that he's willing to kill them. So that... He doesn't have to deal with this dishonor of Mordecai not standing when he goes by. It's just, it's ridiculous. And this is just a kind of a note here, but, you know, some people have, have looked at this verse and said, a gallows 50 cubits high in one night, like, that's impossible. And they've tried to discredit uh, the book of Esther for, for little things like this. Um, and this is just kind of a, an interesting thing, but, you know, in Western culture, we think of a gallows as like this big structure, you know, you have to build, and there's a platform, and then there's a thing that goes up, and there's a rope, and um, most, well, a lot of scholars think that that's not the case at all. Um, what they're really talking about here was one of the favorite things of the Persian Empire at the time was to impale people on a big stick or pole and then lift them up in the air and put it down in a pit. And that's what they called hanging someone. We think of lynch, but for them, most likely, this is referring to a big 75-foot-long pole that would be stuck through and then he would be lifted and dropped down in the ground. So, a little bit of a, an interesting thing there, and really just adds to the, the horror of the situation. I mean, can you, can you imagine the depths that a person is in when they find comfort in the thought of killing somebody else in this way? Like, it's just horrible. But the end of of chapter 5, it says, this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. What a guy. 
Well, on to the next section, insomnia and assumptions. Now, how do we, I mean, this is bad. And Mordecai doesn't even know that this is going on. He's just carrying on his, his business as usual. He's gone home probably for the night, and he has no idea that this is going on. He doesn't know that his life is in danger tonight. He knows it's in danger in about a year, but not tonight. But now we see God start to do things. On that night, the king could not sleep. Now, this is uh, such a simple little phrase, but I think it, it reveals just the, the simple ways that God can work in situations. Hasuerus, typically, probably after a good party and a, some good drinking, probably went home and fell asleep pretty easily most of the time. But tonight, he couldn't sleep. No matter what he tried, can't sleep. Now, is it indigestion, or is that God? I think it's God. <laughs> because what happens? Well, he can't sleep, so what does he do? He tries reading something. Well, I mean, he's too good to read it himself, but he has people come and read to him. So he gives orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And, you know, again, you can see this just as happenstance, or you can see this as God at work. What do they open to in this book of the Chronicles? Well, they, they recall and they start to read about how Mordecai had helped the king, how Mordecai had discovered this plot by two of the eunuchs to, to kill the king. And it just so happens, if you remember, uh, back to the end of, of chapter 3, it seemed kind of weird, didn't it? That right after Mordecai revealed this plot, it was found out, and the eunuchs were killed, th there was nothing. Like, it went right from Mordecai doing this great thing to Haman being promoted. And you were tempted to maybe feel bad and go, what's going on? I mean, come on, Mordecai should have got his... Uh, you know, some gratitude from the king back then. Well, lo and behold, it was for a reason. He wasn't rewarded back then, and the king realizes his mistake. And he goes, well, wait a second. What has been done for Mordecai? And the answer is, nothing. Now, this was a, a pretty big deal for Persian kings and kings of that time, they were known for, for greatly rewarding those who um, had done good things for them. And so it was kind of a, it was a misstep on the king's part. He uh, was maybe embarrassed. Well, I can't believe I haven't said thank you. I need to do something. And so he goes, well, hmm, I wonder what I should do. Hey, maybe there's somebody here who can give me a good idea of what to do. And we don't know what time of night or morning this was, um, but we know that it just so happens that Haman has just come into the court. And so the king says, hey, see who's out there in the court, see if anybody can come in and give me an idea of what I need to do. 
Servants go out and, oh, Haman is here. Now what's Haman doing? He's coming to tell the king about his plan to kill Mordecai, right? But as he comes into the court, the servants say, oh, Haman, glad you're here. Come on in. The king wants to see you. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know he'd be expecting me. Haman comes in, and the king asks Haman, what should I do? How could I honor someone who I have delight in or someone who's done something good to me? What should I do? How could I honor them? And here again, we, we see the pride of Haman. Um, in verse 6 of chapter 6, so Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, oh, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And this is just so fitting with his, uh, his pity party and his view of himself. He thinks he is the best thing around. And it doesn't even enter into his mind that the king might be talking about somebody else. So he just goes, oh, huh, interesting. How would I like to be honored? And so he, he makes up this thing about wearing the king's uh, clothes and being paraded around the city on a horse. And uh, you can tell that maybe he's put some thought into this before, and now here's his opportunity. Um, and he gives this, this great explanation for what needs to be done for the person who, who needs to be honored. And he's making a huge assumption. The king's insomnia, his lack of sleep, has led to the situation that's just perfect for Haman to make the assumption that he's the one being honored, but he's not. And this is another one of those areas where I just wish there were a little bit more detail on Haman's actual reactions. Um, but if you look at, at verse 10, the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. Now, think back to the start of this, how Haman was so happy after that party and then saw Mordecai and instantly wrath. Can you imagine what happened now? Oh, the king wants to honor me. Whoa, <laughs> I knew I deserved this. Put royal robes on me. Parade me around the city on a horse. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea, Haman. Go do that for Mordecai. And in an instant, again, his world is just falling apart. His plans are being frustrated. He thinks he's going to get honored, but no. It's actually the guy who's causing him so much trouble who's going to get honored. And so, again... We have this, this instance where Haman goes from top of the world to the very bottom in an instant. Well, he can't really do anything other than obey the king, so he does it. He goes in, he gets Mordecai, and he parades him around the city, puts the king's garments on him, and he proclaims, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Ah. Oh. If he was mad before, if he was humiliated before, imagine what he's feeling now. 
Which brings us to, well, actually, that was <laughs> the third section. Uh, God acting. In verse 10, I think God, you know, starts to act. And even though he's not mentioned by the author, this is God acting. At the very height, when, when Haman thinks, yes, I'm going to get rewarded, God switches things around. And Haman ends up being humiliated. And Mordecai ends up getting this, this little glimmer that something's going on here. Hmm. Could it be that what we've been praying for and fasting for is starting to happen? Because remember, Mordecai is kind of in the dark here. And then Haman shows up. And then he's paraded around the city. And, huh, Lord, are you starting to do something here? Sure seems like it. And God continues to work in verse 12. Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now this is kind of an interesting turn of events too, because who was it that advised Haman to kill Mordecai? It was his friends and his wife, right? And now, after this happens, Haman comes back and he tells his friends and his wife, oh, you can't believe what happened to me, Mordecai, blah, blah, blah. And this time they don't go, well, you better try harder to kill him. This time, something happens. And it's interesting, a couple of the commentators pointed this out, that they're called his friends back in chapter 5. They're called his friends when he's talking to them um, and telling them everything that had happened in verse 13. But then it says, halfway through 13, then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him. And it's just kind of this interesting switch here from friends to wise men. What do the friends say? Kill him. What do the wise men say? Hmm. You know, this Mordecai guy is of Jewish descent. We don't think there's any way you're going to win. And this is probably comes as, as quite a shock to Haman because all that he's gotten from them before has been, oh, you're the best, Haman, you're the best, and you should do this and you should do that. But now they're saying, ooh, hmm, wait a second. <laughs> if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. One of the uh, commentators that I read likened this to the situation of Balaam. If you remember the, the prophet uh, Balaam, he was hired to curse the Israelites. And he tried. He tried hard. But every time he tried to curse the Israelites, the Lord intervened, and he ended up blessing them. And 
We see a little bit of that type of thing here where his friends and his wife, who would usually be consoling and usually uplifting and encouraging and telling Haman, hey, go kill this person. It'll make you feel better. Now they're going, hmm, we don't think you're going to win. And we see God is in control of this situation. Even though the author writes this in, in a way that, that appears like God is nowhere, man, he's moving. He's doing stuff. He's working in this situation. And just as his wife and his friends, who should be so encouraging to him, have just told him, uh, we think you're not going to win, Knock, knock. While they were yet talking with him, verse 14, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, Haman was pretty excited about this feast. I mean, what an honor. Only he and the king were invited to this. He must be pretty important, right? Well... I guess we'll see. But I think the, the thing that we see in this passage is that God is at work behind the scenes, and the evil that was planned is being frustrated. More, or Haman, in his uh, attempts to, to lift himself up, is being brought low. And the king, he's kind of a bumbling fool through all of this, but even the king is being used by God to bring about good things for the Jews. And do Esther and Mordecai have any real active part in this? Not really. It's just God is being faithful, and God is working behind the scenes to help them. So, by way of application, you know, I, I kind of started out telling an a instance of where I feel like God was kind of working behind the scenes. Little did I know. But isn't it encouraging to know that that is the God that we serve? A God who works behind the scenes, who does stuff that, that we aren't even aware of in order to help us. One of the commentators that I, I read, his name is Dowden, and he said this. Did you notice that in chapter 6, the only mention of Esther was in regard to the second feast she prepared? And did you also notice that what Mordecai experienced was not the result of some grand plan he designed or something he was working to achieve? So if Esther was not leading the charge and Mordecai was... Uh, if Esther was not leading the charge and Mordecai was not calling for change, who was in control? You know the answer, don't you? I like that because I read that and I go, yeah, I know the answer. <laughs> and I hope that you know the answer too. 
God is in control. And even when things look horrible, God is doing something. Now, does that mean that things are going to be easy? Life is going to be easy all the time? No, it doesn't. And in fact, we started the service out by reading from Romans chapter 5, and I'd like to go back there because there's a couple of application points. Um, Romans 5, 1 through 5 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. These were not easy circumstances that Esther and Mordecai were going through, and yet God was working. And it's the same in our lives. You know, we have all kinds of troubles that we come across, and we're tempted to just say, God, get this out of my life. I just want ease. But most of the time when we're at ease, we're not growing. We're not learning endurance, which leads to hope as these verses say. So even if you're in a point in your life where you're like, man, I've got some hard stuff that I'm facing, take courage. Because it's through those sufferings, it's through those hard times that God works and he produces character in us. And he produces endurance, which gives us hope. Also, I think in this we see a glimpse of the gospel. I've kind of mentioned this a couple of times, but Mordecai didn't even realize the trouble that he was in. And that, in, in a small way, is like an unbeliever. They don't even realize the trouble that they're in. Part of God's grace in our lives is that he shows us the trouble that we're in. He convicts us that, yes, we are sinners, that, yes, the wages of sin is death. But the cool thing is that even though Mordecai had no idea really what was going on in the background, that's also how God has worked in salvation. If you look at the, the last couple of verses of that Romans passage again, Romans 5, 6 through 8, through 8, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And then verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. We didn't even know the trouble that we were in. We were weak. We were helpless to do anything. And in the midst of our weakness and our helplessness, and even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's the grace of God that allows us to see our own need of a Savior and to see what, what God has done through Christ on the cross. He took the penalty of our sin and our shame on himself. He rose again from the dead to prove that he has power over sin and that he can truly offer life and not just life here on earth, but eternal life. 
You know, that's the good news. That's the hope of the gospel. And by grace, if you put your faith in Jesus and what he's done, you can realize how amazing it is that God worked out all of this and did all of this when you really didn't deserve it. While you were still a sinner. And he did all of that while you were helpless. You were weak. There is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation because everything we do is tainted by sin. We are weak. We need help. And praise God, through Christ, he brought it. And he offers it freely to those who would believe. Just like Mordecai was kind of clueless to what was going on in the background, one of the amazing things about the gospel is that while we were weak and helpless and still dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us and made a way for us to have forgiveness of sins and hope of eternity with God. So next week we'll continue on to uh, chapter 7, but um, yeah, I just wanted to leave us with those two thoughts from Romans that I think are, are really applicable here. Number one, God is at work. He's at work in our lives, even in the hard stuff. We tend to think that he, all he wants for us is good and easy, but that's not what you see in the Bible. That's not what you see in Romans 5 here. You see that you have to persevere. You have to grow in your relationship with him. And the other thing that, you know, hopefully we, we come away with is just a an awe and a confidence in this God who works behind the scenes. He did it throughout history. He did it throughout the Bible. Read the Bible, be amazed by it. But he especially did it through Christ to offer us salvation. He did what we couldn't do, what we wouldn't have done while we were weak and helpless. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you for this time to look at your word, to consider who you are. And Lord, we thank you that we can be reminded of your greatness and your activity in this world. Um, Lord, I pray that as we, um, as we continue on in our lives, that you would give us strength and perseverance. Help us to know that you are at work in circumstances. Help us to have confidence to go through hard things, knowing that, that you are using those for our benefit. And Lord, we thank you so much for the blessing of your son who did what we could never do. Lord, we are truly grateful for the salvation that you offer us through faith in Christ. Lord, help us to worship you now. We ask this in your name. Amen.